Arthur Alper, the 200 Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this uh, edition of Fangraphs Audio, returning from... He was gone last week because he was on a pleasure vacation. He has now returned from his pleasure vacation, uh, and he's uh, returned to his what we call a workaday existence. I think we'll call it that. Anyway, uh, it's Dave Cameron. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs. And literally, uh, at the beginning of this uh, edition of the podcast... Uh, literally, he utters his first words of the day. I think I called him about 11 a.m. his time, 11 a.m. his time. He starts off, I don't know if we'll get it in the actual edition here, he starts off, his voice cracks because it's literally the first words he's uttered all day because he works from home. In any case, uh, are you familiar with Masahiro Tanaka? You might be because he's the Japanese pitcher who recently signed with the Yankees. Dave Cameron has opinions. Are you familiar with Matt Garza? You probably are because he's pitched for the Cubs and the Rays and um, before that the Twins. That's less important. But most recently he has just signed a four-year deal with the Milwaukee Brewers. Dave Cameron dissects the deal. That's that's lame. But uh, he dissects it. He does dissect it like a frog. But really where do we start? We start with Eric O'Flaherty who is just there's a relief pitcher who signed with the Oakland A's. And it's actually interesting. There's a, something interesting with regard to Eric O'Flaherty that if you're a baseball fan, you probably want to know. It's uh, Fangraphs Audio. As I say, it features Dave Cameron returning from a week of pleasure to, once again, to his burdens, his work, to his professional burdens. This is a professional burden. It's Fangraphs Audio, if I didn't say that. begins right now. person you've spoken to today perchance. yeah that that could be accurate <laughs> that's good you're you're easing back into uh to working life yeah you know i think uh you don't want to rush into these things no this is true no that does happen uh, i think that's a that's a product of uh working from home it is yeah. uh, you you spend a lot of time silently yeah, there, there are times when my wife comes home from work at like 5.30 or 6 and I haven't said a word out loud all day. <laughs> oh, no. It's a little bit sad. It's a, yeah. it's, it's a little bit sad. It's one of the downsides of this uh, pretty great career I have. Yeah. Now, wait a second. Now, I know you're part of, uh, uh, you're part of a faith community, I believe. Is that right? That's true. Yeah. And so you actually, you actually see people, um, who are, I mean, you see people like during the course of the week sometimes. Yeah, isn't that normal for? I mean, is that like a faith community specific thing? Like only people who have faith have friends? No, 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 no. Um, well, maybe, but my my point is more or less like because you don't you don't see people at work is my point. Yes, correct. I have I have no live coworkers. I mean, you're live. You're just not you know where I can see you. Right. And um and so, but you do have this. My point is, you have this outlet where you can actually talk to other people yeah there's also like grocery stores and starbucks and like places that occasionally i'll just be like i need to get out of the house and uh now that we have a dog i go to the dog park most days and so there there are outlets for me to have uh conversation or at least to speak audible words to other human beings during the day you know let me tell you um 
I was uh, um, uh, my wife and I, you know, if uh, if and when we back up, um, end up back in the United States, we're very interested in, in getting a dog. Uh, however, we also noticed that it's very hard to find apartments that um, that feel the same way. That's true. Yes, the, the if you're going to rent, having a pet is difficult. It is, yeah, and uh, in, in, in a number of places, are even they they say they're cat friendly, um, but they don't care for dogs. Yeah, dogs are much more destructive of property than cats are. Yeah, well, maybe they are. I don't know, but they don't. Uh, but cat doesn't cat urine smell? Doesn't it have a particularly invasive odor? Well, I think the hope is that you wouldn't just let your cat urinate everywhere. Right, but as a uh, as a as a property owner, you're thinking worst case scenario, I assume. Right. I don't know. I think you think likely scenario, mm. right? If you're thinking worst case scenario, you probably wouldn't let anyone live there because anyone could be a psychopath who would blow up your building. Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, not yeah. so. I guess not totally worst case scenario. You you have to take some amount of risk, and I think a cat poses less risk to your property than a dog. Okay. Said as an owner of uh, lost property from dog. Right. What's the what's the biggest thing so far? Uh, we have a couch that we put in the basement. Uh, we, we, she has like the, we basically gave her our you know finished basement, and uh, we put a lousy couch we got from my sister-in-law down there and we used to just let her like sleep on it when we leave for the day or you know when i leave her at home for a few hours and we let her just wander around the basement and there were toys down there and then one day we came home and the entire side of the couch was torn off mm-hmm. so that was yeah. the end of that. there you go that happened yeah. okay uh so the big eric eric o'flaherty signing let's get yeah. to it i i missed out on uh, all the news last week including oakland signing more relievers right wait uh, you say it like that and obviously we don't want to f- Entirely focus on that, but what, when you say including Oakland signing more relievers, is that is that a strange thing? Well, I think it's interesting in that you know the A's are a limited revenue uh, franchise in Major League Baseball, and historically also one of the more advanced teams in, in using analytics to build their roster. Uh, and I think you know it's kind of a tenant of sabermetrics that relievers are a bad investment. Uh, at least at market prices. And we've seen the A's, they traded for Jim Johnson, who got $10 million uh, to avoid arbitration. Uh, they've spent a decent amount of money on their bullpen. And, uh, you know, um, I think the, the the prevailing trend is that analytically-minded teams are maybe spending a little bit more on their bullpens this year than they have in the past, which I think is something interesting to note. For, and for what reason, then? Well, I think their hope is that they're spending uh, money on a new market inefficiency. Um, whether they're correct or not remains to be seen. Just because the A's and Rays do something doesn't mean they've definitely figured something out. Uh, but it could be that, you know, they've identified uh, some pitchers who are, you know, potentially more valuable than, than the market is valuing them. Uh, it could also be that they're trying to limit their exposure in terms of contract length. So I think one of the things we're seeing right now in free agency is that inflation is mostly happening in years, not in annual average value. Uh, but guys who used to get two- or three-year deals are now getting four or five, and guys who used to get five or six are now getting seven or eight, uh, where we're seeing longer and longer contracts in free agency for almost all tiers of players. Um, you know, even utility infielders, Skip Schumacher's replacement-level guys, Willie Bloomquist are getting two-year deals, um, where with these relievers, we're not really seeing that. Most relievers still sign one- or two-year contracts, uh, so one of the few ways you can spend money on, you know, potentially an impact player or, you know, a player of some quality and limit your long-term exposure is spend it in the bullpen. And so that could be one of the reasons the A's and Rays are pursuing this is, uh, you know, if they want to spend 10 or $12 million, uh, 
uh, you know, on one player, you can't get a position player for one year and ten million anymore. Any any position player who's going to make ten million a year is going to get a multi-year deal. So um, it could be avoidance of long-term contracts has driven them to the only market where you can get a single-year player left. Oh, inter- interesting. So because I remember uh, you, well. I just remember Carlos Pena. It seemed like he signed a succession of one-year, ten million dollars deals. Is this? Uh, was could he still do it? Yeah, I mean, you could give Carlos Pena ten million dollars. You just don't have to if you want Carlos Pena anymore because he's declined at the point where uh, that's no longer a good idea. Uh, I think you know what the largest one-year contract we've seen off the top of my head right now. I think is Michael Morse who got six million. Uh, Corey Hart also got six million with some incentives that could drive it up a little bit coming off surgery. Um, but I don't recall too many other large one-year contracts, uh, you know, besides, you know, J- J- Johnson wasn't a free agent, but he was essentially a free agent in that, you know, any team could have traded for him because the Orioles wanted to dump him, uh, dump his salary, and so the A's acquired him and paid him $10 million uh, and gave up, you know, Jamile Weeks as like a, a fringe prospect in the in, in the process. So it cost him $10 million and a little a little bit of talent to get him. Uh, but that's, you know, these are really the only kinds of players who are getting significant money on one-year deals. Almost everyone else is signing two-plus-year deals this offseason. Wait, and so a, a strange thing in, um, about the Eric O'Flaherty deal is the, um, is the way that the, the payments are distributed. I think it's just one and a half million for his first year and then five and a half, uh, aka almost, uh, four times as much for, for the, for the second year, I should say. And, uh, I mean, besides the fact that he's coming off Tommy John surgery, there's nothing that's, a, there's nothing obvious to me about why that would be the case. But, um, you tend, you tend to be a little more clever about these things than I do. Well, I think there's, you know, the, the main reason a team will backload a contract is simply to get a player onto their roster for the given season in, the, in which they couldn't afford him if they spread out their payments evenly. So the Royals have been doing this pretty frequently for the last couple of years. I think with Jeremy Guthrie, they gave him 325 and it went like 5, 10, 10. Uh, and I think with Jason Vargas, they did a similar thing. Uh, or at least some free agent they signed to this winter, they backloaded the deal. Uh, could have been Omar Infante. Well, one of their free agents is significantly backloaded. Uh, and I think their plan is they want to add these players while they have a window to win or they think they have a window to win. Um, and the way to get more of them onto the roster is to underpay them in the, in the present uh, in order to you know keep their current salaries down and keep your team under budget. And you just borrow money from the future in order to do that. So you say, okay, well, I should be paying Eric O'Flaherty, you know, $4 million this year. I'm only going to pay him a million and a half. I'm essentially borrowing $2.5 million dollars. Uh, from next year's budget in order to put it on this year's budget because I think I have a window to win now. Yeah, and Eric, uh, Eric O'Flaherty doesn't mind, one, is, one assumes. Yeah, the play, I mean, the players have very little incentive to ask for front-loaded contracts or to try and get your money up front because for the player, uh, there's not a huge difference between uh, lifestyle of if they're going to get their $2.5 million you know, in 12 months or now, if, you know, especially if they need to go buy something, like for most of them, they could, uh, they have access to easy credit, especially if they have guaranteed contracts where the payments due in 18 months, it's not that hard for them to go to some kind of lender and say, hey, I want my $2 million now and I'm just going to pay a little bit of interest in order to get it. I can guarantee you it's coming because I have it in the contract right here. It's very easy for them to secure access to funds now if they need it. Most of them don't need it. So uh, for the player, there's no huge incentive in order to uh, try and push the present value or uh, the money into the present day. Uh, for the team, there's a decent amount of incentive to backload uh, and to try and get as much uh, value for their current money as they can. Here's maybe a simple-minded question. Um, is there any reason to front-load a contract? And 
uh, regardless of whether there is or is not, are there any examples of front-loaded contracts? Yeah, so I think the Astros actually did this with Scott Feldman's contract this winter. It's pretty rare. Uh, you see this in other sports where those salary cap uh, match nations kind of cause you to do things in order to get around cap rules. But since baseball doesn't have a salary cap, you don't really see it as much. Uh, so there's basically one argument for front-loading in, in Major League Baseball, and that's if you believe that you have to spend some some amount of money in order to get Major League Baseball off of your case in, in terms of uh, minimum spending on your team while you're not trying to win uh, like the Astros would be this year. Um, and you want to like show your fans that you're making a good faith effort in spending money and, you know, the casual fan who's just going to look at, you know, hear total payroll reported and not necessarily understand all the reasonings of why contracts are structured the way they are. If you front load a deal when you're trying to rebuild and you're not trying to win, you can say, okay, I'm spending $50 million this year. Bud Selig's not going to send me an angry letter. The Players Association isn't going to complain that we're pocketing the revenue-sharing money. Uh, and then in a couple of years, when we're trying to win, uh, Scott Feldman's not going to cost us as much, and we're going to have more flexibility to go sign free agents. So essentially, the, the Astros are loaning themselves money in a couple of years when they think they might be able to be ready to win, uh, and they're borrowing it from a year in which they wouldn't be expected to contend. I think in general... Uh, we don't see too many of these deals. One, because it drives the, uh, actual, val- actual price of the contract up. So Scott Feldman only got $30 million, uh, over three years, but his net present value is going to be higher because it's paid out more, uh, now when money is worth more than it will be in, in a couple of years. So they actually paid a little more than $30 million to get him, uh, compared to a contract that was backloaded. Um, and you know, again, Feldman probably didn't see that as a huge value add to him. Um, I, I doubt that anyone else was bidding $30 million and front-loading the deal got the Astros Feldman instead of another team. So, um, you know, but I think that basically the Astros just lent themselves money. We don't see this a lot, though, because rebuilding teams usually aren't signing free agents to significant contracts. Right. Now, you, you, and you've mentioned this before, though, right? Um, this idea, on the, on the one hand, you have uh, maybe both the Players Union and Major League Baseball um you know, su- suggesting to every team that they need to need to spend a, a certain amount of money, uh, but you also isn't it the case? I feel like we've discussed this before, where uh, where teams organizations really do operate like businesses in the sense that they have an operating budget for any given year, and it's not necessarily fluid one year to the next. So if uh, you know Jeff Luno has X number of dollars to spend, he'll say, well, well, you know, I have a some space here and I can just, uh, I could sign, I can have Scott Feldman, you know, for Y plus one and Y plus two and, but I'll pay him a bunch for just Y because, um, because I have that money right now. Yeah. And I think this is probably one area that if if there is a market inefficiency of baseball, it's probably in the way that ownership treats their budgets. And I think, you know, we've seen some teams try to move away from this, you know, annual reporting model. I think the Blue Jays a few years ago had a three-year rolling model uh, where they were able to spend, you know, say $250 million over three years, and they were able to allocate it as, you know, 50, 100, 100, or 70, 70, 90, or whatever they wanted to do. They could, you know, come up with $250 million over three years, uh, and, you know, they could allocate it when they thought they were going to win and go up and down and have pretty big fluctuations. Most teams are not willing to do that. Most teams want to have a pretty consistent payroll. Uh, they don't want to be seen as slashing payroll, so they don't really want to go 100 to 150 because then they get, you know, fire sale and all the things that go along with the negative publicity for cutting payroll, especially when Major League Baseball is rolling in money. So I think most teams prefer to have kind of a uh, consistent, uh, slow increase in their payroll from one year to the next, uh, even if you're not trying to win. So, you know, for the, a team like uh, the Astros or the Cubs, 
uh, it might be more beneficial for them to go, you know, 40 million this year and 100 million next year that rather than 70 million in both years. Uh, but ownerships, most ownership situations aren't going to go for that kind of structure. I think, you know, eventually we'll probably see a move more towards that as baseball operations makes a larger influence on their ownership and says, hey, look, you know, if, if you'll let us spend the same amount of money more efficiently, we can get you more bang for your buck. Uh, I think owners in general are not that shrewd, though, and uh, this is not something they've bought into yet. Yeah, okay, on the one hand, they're not sh- that shrewd. On the other hand, they're like, um, I assume they got wealthy somehow. Uh, yeah. Well, maybe they, I mean, maybe they come from good families. Let's assume they come from good families, probably. Right. So when I'm saying an owner is not that shrewd, it's not that I'm trying to insult his financial uh, intelligence. I think from a uh, economic standpoint, there's no real difference in, in a team spending, you know, 70, 70 versus 40, 100, where, you know, Theo Epstein or whoever it is can't really go to his owner and say, I can make you more money uh by you know spending it differently and kind of show on the books how this is going to make them a larger profit it's more along the lines of i can get you more wins for the same amount of money which is a a little bit of a different equation and a little bit of a harder thing to prove rather than just saying hey look i'm going to get you a slightly better roi which is kind of the language that most of these guys have spoken um you know unless they have family money and maybe they're just you know wasting it away but most of these guys are are good businessmen uh, obviously they got rich for a reason but they got rich in maximizing profits not so much maximizing wins and i think there is a different mindset between those two things but but uh, there does seem to be some sense that winning leads to more money yeah teams that win more make more money for a number of reasons yes and no i think teams that win more make more money that is true in isolation Teams that win more also take on more risk. Uh, in order to win, you have to give some pretty significant contracts to players who may or may not perform. You have some downside, as you know, the Angels and Marlins in recent years, the last year's Blue Jays uh, have shown. So, you know, you can make the case to your owner that winning will bring in more money, but that potential uh, extra revenue comes at the, uh, you know, creation of extra risk, which, you know, some uh, owners are pretty risk-averse and say, you know what, maybe I can make another $30 million by spending another $20 million, or I can just not try and get that extra $10 million in profit and guarantee myself, uh, you know, kind of the net revenue I'm going to get from just pocketing revenue-sharing intelligent money and only having a $60 or $70 million payroll. This is what the Pirates were famously accused of doing during the 1990s and 2000s when they ran really low payrolls and made money every year. Uh, you know, the Marlins are basically doing this right now. Um, you know, they have their new stadium, they're rolling in revenues, and they're not spending any money on, you know, anyone trying to win. Uh, they're just going to pocket the revenues. So I think for some teams, the risk of winning isn't worth it. They would rather just say, you know what, I'm guaranteed this kind of profit, and uh, there's no real risk because it doesn't require me trying to win. Why would I risk my guaranteed profit on something that might not pay off? You know what that is, Dave Cameron? That's that's uh, That's great stuff you're giving me. Go. Thanks. That's that's, uh, that's, a, that's a that's a compliment. Yeah, sure. That's great stuff. No, that's interesting I, to me. I'm I'm unaware of what to do after receiving a compliment. Yeah. No. That no, that's great stuff. Well, let's. Uh, I suppose we have to talk about Tanaka. Does that seem? We we should probably talk about Masahiro Tanaka and Matt Garza. I would okay. think they are slightly bigger news than Eric O'Flaherty. Right. Well, Garza is a little bit more interesting to me, um, especially for how quickly he signed after Tanaka. But let's talk. We'll get to Tanaka, and um, here let me tell you. Let me tell you how I feel about him, and then you say why he's more interesting than I'm suggesting. Okay. I think he's probably pretty good. Yep. Um, I think that probably the amount of attention that ha- – not not necessarily that he's received, but his situation is received – has probably um, 
polarized opinions about him uh, more than they ought to be. He's probably a pretty good pitcher. Uh, Steamer says uh, three and a half to four wins. The fans say three and a half to four wins. That's about what he's getting paid for, and uh, he's going to pitch for the Yankees. That's the last thing is a fact. That could have been first, but my point is that this seems like the thing that's going to happen. It's probably good for the Yankees. I don't know if it's going to be the thing that helps them to win uh, the American League East. So I would disagree on the fact that he's being paid to pitch like a three and a half to four win pitcher because I think the the interesting thing about Tanaka isn't so much uh you know his performance or even the total price for me it's the opt out so this is the fascinating thing about the Tanaka deal is that the Yankees have essentially committed when you include the the posting fee you know I haven't seen the exact contract structure so maybe they backloaded it but if if they didn't backload the contract. We're looking at a commitment of 108 million over the next four years before Tanaka has the right to opt out and become a free agent. That's 27 million dollars a year. <laughs> this is, uh, paying Masahiro Tanaka like he is one of the very best pitchers in baseball, the, like in the next year after Clayton Kershaw. And then, uh, after those four years where they're upside, their best case scenario is they pay him 108 million for four years. If he's hurt, then they owe him another 60 million over the final three years that are probably not going to be worth it because he got to opt into those deals he didn't think he could do any better. If he's, uh, not hurt and he's pitching well, he's going to hit the free agency and ask for 200 million dollars and they're going to have spent 27 million a year on four years of Tanaka. The, the argument in favor of giving Tanaka such a big contract was that he's 25, you get long-term control of a young pitcher. If you give him an opt-out, you no longer get that. So I think for the Yankees, I don't really see the upside here. There's a ton of chance that Tanaka is terrible or blows out his arm or, you know, some uh, performance variation causes him to underperform, in which case the Yankees are out $175 million. If he's really good, then they get four years of him at a, you know, extreme market premium, and then they lose him to free agency or have to give him a raise. Okay, yeah, so so the, so the opt-out is the interesting thing. One assumes that that's why they were able to sign him is because they offered him. I mean, you, I know that you uh, um, have spoken to this frequently, the idea of, uh, you know, the, the cost of a potentially marginal win and maybe his is, his is the marginal win for, for the, for the Yankees and, uh, this is why you would do that. Yeah, I mean, so certainly the marginal win to the Yankees is worth more than it is to anyone else. And, you know, the Yankees need to get better. They hurt their own brand by, uh, you know, being a 500-ish team rather than getting to the playoffs every year. Uh, and, you know, I think for the Yankees it makes sense to continue investing in their team. That said, I think the, the argument isn't, okay, Tanaka's uh, a marginal win to the Yankees is worth $10 million. You know, Tanaka gives the Yankees four wins, therefore he's worth $40 million. They're only paying him 27 What a deal. <coughs> I think the reality is Tanaka is going to sign for approximately the same or a little bit more over the next four years, which is kind of the guaranteed years the Yankees get. Uh, as Matt Garza and any of the other free agent starters still on the market put together. Like, so Garza got 450. Uh, Tanaka's gonna get 108 over the next four before the opt-out. Uh, so now you're, you're left with 58 million over the next four years. You can sign Abaldo Jimenez or Urban Santana or Bronson Arroyo and, uh, you know, something else, uh, for that money. So for, are you gonna say, I think the Yankees are better with just Tanaka and then Brian Roberts is your starting second baseman and Kelly Johnson is your starting third baseman and, you know, whoever they find for their number fifth starter, uh, rather than signing two of these starters or signing, you know, Omar Infante and Bronson Arroyo and Mag- – I mean, couldn't you have not spent $108 million over the next four years better than on one pitcher uh, when you see what the market's paying some of these two- to three-win players? I think, for me, 
uh, as good as Tanaka might be, this contract doesn't really make any sense given what the Yankees could have done for the same money. Okay. Well, let's uh, well let's look at then the the guard. So uh, I actually uh, spoke with Ben Nicholson Smith last Thursday. Do you remember yeah. Ben Nicholson Smith? I I know Ben fairly well. Uh, he's a uh, great guy, right? Yeah, I like Ben a lot. Indisputable. Uh, yeah. He used to work at MLB Trade Rumors. Now at uh, Sportsnet. Yep. Uh, very sweet. And I asked him to. I asked him. I said uh, I wanted a prediction, and his professional credibility uh, was at stake. That's what I told him. Um, okay. And he agreed to it, and I said, between now uh, – it was just after Tanaka had signed. I said, between now and when this post goes up on uh, Friday afternoon, you know, uh, do you think that any of the other sort of three big pitchers, Garza, Jimenez, or um, uh, Santana will sign? Uh, he said, I think no. I think they're going to wait for some offers to see what's happening. But then look at Matt Garza signed. Yeah, I think that deal was probably in place before the Tanaka. I mean, the Brewers, they weren't in on Tanaka. Uh, and I think Garza had a pretty decent sense of what his market was. The teams that had been rumored to be interested in Garza were not teams that are bidding on Tanaka. So the markets didn't overlap there as much as people might have thought. I mean, the teams that were reportedly interested in Garza the most were the Angels and the, the Mariners and, and teams that weren't the final bidders on Tanaka. So I think besides like the Dodgers, Yankees, and Cubs, and maybe the Diamondbacks, who were kind of waiting until the last you know week or so uh, to figure out which of them was going to get Tanaka. The other 26 teams had basically already moved on and were probably already negotiating. And so I think the Brewers and Cubs were probably, or the Brewers and Garza were probably just uh, you know sitting around saying, let's wait until Tanaka gets officially announced and then we'll we'll work through the final language of this and, and get it done. I'd imagine this deal had been done for a little while though. Okay, so uh, but now this is good for the Brewers because now it appears as though. Uh, Matt Garza is now the best pitcher on that team. Is uh, is that right? Yeah, he's probably up there with Gallardo and Loesch. I think they're all kind of similar pitchers, and that they're all above average with some risks. I mean, Gallardo certainly got the fastball velocity loss and performance decline from last year, but if you buy into his long-term track record, he's pretty good. Uh, you know, Kyle Loesch has had a couple of years of really outperforming his peripherals. Uh, some of that might be pitch framing with, uh, you know, guys like Yadier Molina and Jonathan Lucroy. Uh, some of that just might be a new skill that he's learned where he can outpitch his, his uh, uh, fielding independent numbers. Um, but you know, I think those three are all average to slightly above average starting pitchers, all pretty similar. I like Marco Estrada. He might even be in that mix as well. So now the Brewers rotation isn't terrible. It's just still not great. Well, any time, uh, when you, when you sign a pitcher, like, uh, in this case, Matt Garza, who you know was going to be average to slightly above average, uh, that's good because then, um, because you're not replacing the former number one or number two starter, you're replacing... The number five starter. So, what in this case, uh, Willie Peralta, maybe? Yeah, I mean, the Brewers have no pitching depth. So, a guy like Garza is more useful to them than he would have been to a team like the Red Sox, who already have six guys as good as my, Matt Garza. Uh, you know, I think for the Brewers, this is a pretty significant upgrade because of their lack of starting pitching depth, and he really will help them. I'm not sure he's going to help them enough to keep up with the Cardinals and Reds and Pirates in the NL Central, and I'm not sure I'm going to love Matt Garza in two or three years, uh, especially if his elbow continues to flare up. Uh, I mean, this isn't the kind of contract that's going to really weigh down a team where it's 12 or $13 million a year. The Brewers will survive. But at the same time, this is also a team with very little depth who has most of their payroll, and you know, as a mid-revenue team, tied up in just a few players. I mean, between Ryan Braun, Aramis Ramirez, uh, you know, Garza, Gallardo, and Loesch, that's almost all of their payroll. 
uh, locked into those five players. You throw in Carlos Gomez, where they got a bargain extension, but still making some money. Uh, you know, that's almost all of their payroll in those few guys. There's not a lot of room left, which is how they ended up with Unieski Betancourt as their starting first baseman last year. And, you know, they've got, uh, you know, not a lot of protection behind their starters if things go wrong. And so, you know, if they lose a Gene Segura, if Ramirez gets hurt again, or Braun isn't quite what he used to be, uh, there's not a lot of places for them to offset that lost value. They really need everything to go right to contend next year, and I don't think you want to be in a position where you're betting on every single thing going in your favor. Is that what is that it is that why they had Unieski Betancourt and Alex Gonzalez at first base? Can you not find can you not find freely available talent that is a that is has better offensive skills than than Uni Betancourt? Well, sure. I mean, you know, they didn't have to go with a negative two-win player at first base last year. That was their decision. Uh, but I think, you know, the point is that they have a very Stars and Scrubs heavy roster. And I made this point during the season last year when their team was failing miserably, but their top five were excellent. I mean, when, before Braun got suspended and hurt, uh, he was actually playing really well. And Gene Segura was, you know, one of the best shortstops in baseball in the first half of the season. Carlos Gomez was an MVP candidate. Uh, Ramos Ramirez was hitting pretty well. Jonathan Lucroy was very good. Uh, you know, they, they had a core of players you'd look at and be like, this is the core of a contender. And then like player six through 25 was atrocious and they got absolutely nothing from the rest of their roster. I think the Brewers are still somewhat in that, you know, situation. Whereas maybe now they go eight deep instead of six deep. Uh, when you add in Garza and you, you think maybe Garza rebounds a little bit. Uh, you know, they're not atrocious, uh, in, you know, players 5 through 10. Now it's like, you know, really good players 1 through 5, and, you know, okay players 5 to 10, and then, you know, players 11 through 25 still stink. So when you talk about stars stars and scrubs, I want to make sure that we sort of define this term. That's not necessarily speaking to the quality of the players. It's speaking to how much sort of, how much they're being compensated. Well, so the idea, the, the idea behind the Stars and Scrubs model is that you allocate a large percentage of your payroll to the top few players on your team because the belief, and I believe this belief is incorrect, uh, is that you can go find competent, nearly league average players for almost nothing and you can fill the holes with, you know, low cost, uh, you know, league minimum guys who are good enough and then you get, you get carried by your five or six best players. Uh, I think that this, this theory is mostly wrong. It doesn't really work in Major League Baseball. I bet it works great in the NBA, uh, you know, where one player is worth 35 wins or whatever LeBron James is worth. Uh, but in baseball, when the best players in the game are worth seven or eight wins, I don't think it works that well. What about, <coughs> what about the, the Cardinals though? Because they do seem to be a team that has succeeded um, with something like that. I, I don't think you could make a case that the Cardinals' payroll has been skewed heavily towards one player. Uh, I think, you know, when you look at uh, their decision to let Albert Pujols go and then essentially give that same money that they would have given to Pujols to re-sign Yadier Molina and Adam Wainwright uh, and then, you know, maybe bring in Carlos Beltran and say, you know, this is how we're going to spend our $240 million instead of keeping the best player in franchise history or at least up till the point of Pujols left. Like, you know, one of the best first basemen of all time uh, and a sure Hall of Famer uh, who's a homegrown star player, they let him leave. And they said, you know, we're going to spread that money around. I think that's the uh, antithesis of Stars and Scrubs, is deciding that you can do better with three or four players than you can with one. Oh, yeah, well, I guess I was just thinking, uh, my, my point was that they they get a lot of value. They do get a lot of value out of players they're not they're not compensating very much. 
Yeah, so that's, say that's Alan not Craig. Say, yeah, sure, but that, I don't think Stars and Scrubs is about having good player development. I think, you know, otherwise you'd say like, oh, the Rays with Ben Zobrist are a Stars and Scrubs team. Well, they're, they're very clearly not because they don't have, I mean, their highest paid player is going to be David Price making $14 million if they don't trade him. But besides that, Evan Longoria is still making like $7 million a year or something because of the contract they gave him. Uh, you know, I think there are teams that are really good at developing young talent and developing, you know, quality role players in their farm system, but that doesn't make them a Stars and Scrubs team. Uh, Stars and Scrubs team is kind of, uh, going all in on, you know, a few market price players, uh, and then trying to, you know, surround those guys with enough useful cogs, uh, to make it work. I think you could probably make a case that the 2014 Mariners are a Stars and Scrubs team, given that they're gonna give $50 million to Felix Hernandez and Robinson Cano, and $40 million to everybody else on the roster, uh, and we'll see how well that works. You don't sound very... I- I'm not optimistic about optimistic. how that's gonna go, no, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, it, it would be, uh, you know what, uh, I would uh, find valuable, and whether I'm the person to do it, or I'd prefer not to be, uh, would be to actually, uh, come up with, just with a, a, um, a loose algorithm, uh, that would be able to identify teams that do and don't use the Stars and Scrubs method, right? So if you have, like, like you said, if you have X number of players who are, you know, who are making half of the team's money. That, right. that might be an interesting way to, like, I mean, if you were to come up with just a, uh, an offhanded definition of it, how would you, how would you approach that? Yeah, so I think, like, what we've seen is, like, in the national mainstream media, it's not referred to as stars and scrubs, but we often see report, reporters indicate something like, no team has ever won the World Series with one player making more than a quarter of their payroll. Like, that kind of statistic is pretty common and, and, and pretty popular in mainstream circles. Or, you know, more, if two players making more than 40% of the payroll, then no team's ever won the World Series with that setup. I think if I was going to, uh, define stars and scrubs. I probably wouldn't do it just on your top one or two players. I'd probably say like on your top five and say, uh, you know, of your, of your allocated major league payroll, how much of that is going to your, to your top five players versus spots six through 30, say. Because I think, you know, the reality is every team's gonna need, uh, depth beyond their, their normal 25 guys. So if you say, you know, your first five versus the next 25, what, what's the payroll distribution? A stars and scrubs roster might be something like, 70-30 or 60-40 or something in those lines, uh, where, you know, a, a more balanced uh, payout might be along the lines of like 40-60 versus where you're paying more to your 6 through 20 than you are uh, from your, your 1 to 5. The tough thing is for some teams, like, you know, in the Angels' case, uh, you know, they're getting 10 more from Mike Trout uh, for the league minimum. It kind of skews things a little bit. So it's not the easiest thing in the world to um, to study, but I think, you know, we can make some inferences along the lines of, like, the 2013 Brewers or the 2014 Mariners and see that some teams are clearly more interested in spending on a select few players and trying to build out with uh, low-cost reserves, and then, you know, we see other teams, I think, like the Cardinals or, or the A's who are, you know, kind of eschewing the star model and saying, you know what, we're going to have 27 or 28 good players on our roster when we go to spring training. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there it is. That's the punctuation on that <laughs> sentence. The, the dog would like to weigh in. Yeah, but not <laughs> – I would su- suggest that the comments are not particularly valuable. Uh, I mean, amusing uh, uh, but not valuable. Uh, Probably true. I think her comments are generally, feed me, feed me, I need to poop, bacon. That's probably her comments. There you go. Yeah, that's true. It's actually a lot of college men, too. Yeah, also true. Yeah, dogs (laughs) and college freshmen are probably pretty similar. Um, The, uh, I was thinking, 
I was looking at because uh, you know you, you get if we were talking at the beginning. If you want to get a dog, you, you have to usually you have to be an owner. You have to be an you have to own your property. Usually, I mean, you can find some apartments that will let you have a dog, but they're few and far between. I was looking, so I started looking at condom condominiums, Cameron. Yeah. But yeah. I don't know if I can. I don't know if that's for, for someone like me to begin. Can with. I make one suggestion? Yeah, all right. When you're going to tell people that you're looking at condominiums, don't shorten it to condom. Condo is the word you're looking for. Did I say condom? You did. You said, I'm, I've been looking at condom slash condominiums. Condo, condo, condominiums, yeah. Dude, condo is the, is the term that you want to use. I find that generally condoms are cheaper. And uh, yeah. if, Hard it, to live in, maybe. It, <laughs> <laughs> hey, they definitely protect you against the elements, though. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I'm going to go no further down, down this um, rabbit hole. Well, I will say this one. The one advantage to condoms, too, is that typically... You did it again. You've done it for the second time. I know I'm doing it on purpose. Is that they give them away for free at the health center at a university? Well, there you go. Condos, no. A homeless man with uh, lots of condoms. Yeah, but you, but they don't do this with condos. You can hardly ever get them for free. Yeah, maybe in Detroit. I bet they're. Yeah, are they good deals? Are condos good deals or bad deals? So I think it depends on where, where you're living. I, in general, I'm not a real estate expert, so this is not like you know professional real estate advice. You bought think, a thousand, a million. You've bought infinitely more properties than I have. Yeah, I have bought two properties in my life, neither of which have been condos. But okay. I've lived in a condo with a person who bought his condo and it was a friend of mine, and we talked through kind of the finances of him purchasing the condo that we were living in. And I think if you are planning on becoming a landlord at some point and you think you could potentially rent the condo after you do not want to live there, specifically if you're in close proximity to a university, uh, not a terrible investment because especially if you're – like so we, we live in a, a town where Wake Forest University is located. Wake Forest has a very large – uh, wealthy grad student population where most of the people who come to Wake are coming here with parental money and a lot of times what the parents are going to do is not want them to live in a dorm. They're going to either buy them a condo outright for four years and then just sell it when they graduate uh, or they're going to rent it out for them and get them in like a nice off-campus space. So there's like a pretty solid real estate market for quality condos close to the university and that, you know, you could live there for a few years and make your money back, uh, either selling it or rent it for a few years and, and make some secondary income that way. If you're going to buy it in the middle of a town that doesn't have a significant rental population, I would probably advise against it. And is it, is it, uh, for me though, so if I buy, oh yeah, that's, yeah, that's interesting. Especially why well, I would emphasize the grad student part of it. Because, because yeah. you don't want, you don't want those under, like, I mean, again, the undergraduate boy, yeah. maybe a many virtues, but one of them is not, uh, Cleanliness, sort of, yeah, a respect for property or anything like right. that. Again, much I, like I your think, dog. They, yeah, they depending would... on where, what kind of unit. I mean, it's like Wake Forest is a very like you know the, the Wake Forest football games. They have wine and cheese parties and they dress up in suits. Like you know, this is not the kind of like roughhousing uh, university that you would expect, where the the kids who go here are going to destroy all your property. Um, you know, if you live near Arizona State or something, you know, good luck with your stuff. Yeah, I know. But is it you no? Know, ultimately, is it cheaper? Is it cheaper to to rent or to to purchase a condo? Well, I mean, it, it depends on how long you're going to be there. Everything is based on time frame. So mm-hmm. if you're only going to be there for a couple of years, it's absolutely cheaper to rent because closing costs and uh, you know the, the costs associated with selling and getting the property ready and you know if you use a realtor, they're going to take six percent off the top. So uh, if, you know, short term, you rent. If you're going to be there more than five years, that's kind of considered the break even point. It's different for each city, but somewhere in the in the five year range is a, the point where you might want to consider buying. Okay. All right. Well, then now I know a little bit more. 
Yeah, you know, slightly more than you did before. That's yeah, the, the podcast. Yeah, there you go. Very good. All right. Uh, well, let's. Uh, you did. Uh, you fulfilled every. You more than your obligation, really. But you gave me a real estate advice. So let's uh, let's uh, have you say goodbye. Goodbye. Uh, goodbye. That's Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs, back um, after a week. We didn't even talk about your vacation, but who cares? Uh, I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.